You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we go back to Austin for the Business Capital and Exit Strategy Summit, Insights from Silicon Valley, the second panel, Scaling Your Company. We have moderated Karen McCarty Abbott, who's the founder and CEO of Better Leave. We have Darren Herman, the CEO of Gobato. Jerome Fogel, partner at Fogel and Patamianos, and Sam Wong, CEO of Fundable Startups. On this panel, some of the things that are talked about are, what are the milestones investors want to see at each stage of your company's development? How do you set aside equity for the founding team members? How do you build your advisory board and how quickly should your company grow? Now, just a warning, on the first two questions, one of the panelists' microphone was having some issues. That was solved later on. So stay tuned and listen to the entire episode because there's an amazing amount of content and you are really going to enjoy this. All right. Now with that, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. We've got a great second panel. This panel is called Scale Your Company. We have three great panelists. I'd like to introduce first Darren Herman, host of Establish Your Empire, CEO of Gobato, as well as founder of Real Market. Our second panelist is Jerome Fogel. He is the CEO of Fogel, and I'm going to butcher this name, Petamonas. You can correct me when you get up here. <laughs> and it is a boutique law, uh, law office in L.A. Jerome? And once again, the man who needs no introduction, Mr. Sam Wong. Come on up. Again, Sam Wong, everybody. And your moderator, Cara McCarthy. She is the CEO of Believe Bereavement, and also a partner in the fund, Austin. Her superpower is being very compassionate. Everybody, welcome, Cara. Um, I'm excited today to talk to you a little bit about scale your company with these panelists. It's really important. Um, I think you know we don't have enough time to distill it into an hour, but hopefully we can cover a couple of those important questions that you have. Um, before we get started, I always like to ask, raise your hand in the audience if you're a founder. Oh, huge portion. Fabulous. Raise your hand if you're a funder or investor or advisor. Okay. So hopefully you guys saw those hands. So that's who you can network with after this. Be really diligent and specific about who you talk to, right? Time is everything. So I'm glad that we could do that. Um, I want to pass over the mic to Darren to give a little bit introduction about yourself, your journey to here, and what you're working on right now. Well, thanks, Kara. This is uh, very excited to be here, and I'm happy that everybody showed up. This is great to host the event and people show up. Um, so is my mic messing up? It sounds like it is. Uh, okay, good. So um, I, I've ran a marketing company called Gobato for a long time. I love marketing. I love t- storytelling. I love growing other people's companies. been doing that for a while. And I'm also excited about like the panel we just had because I'm starting a startup and figuring out how to you know, do a venture back funding. And so I was taking a bunch of notes, but um, I hosted the Establishing Your Empire podcast, like I said earlier, and uh, where we have just interesting people doing interesting things. Kara's been on it. Sam's been on it. 
we'll have to get you on it soon. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's probably pretty good there. Cool. Let's hand it over, Jerome. Perfect. My name is Jerome Fogel. I'm uh, with the boutique law firm Fogel and Patamianos. It's a tough name. It's Greek. I, I understand. So uh, don't worry about that. Um, quick story about my journey. My, my dad spent time at Hughes Aircraft, JPL, IBM, and IBM in the 80s when it used to be womb to tomb, meaning that it, it, lifelong, you were going to be a part of IBM. Well, they ended up doing a lot of layoffs and moves and restructuring. And my dad told me when I was very young, Jerome, you always have to go into business for yourself. That's the only way you could be secure. And there's some wisdom in that, right? That you're creating your own opportunity. So I was always entrepreneurial at heart, went to business school at, at Haas undergrad, NYU for law school in New York, came back, worked in real estate finance at GE Capital. I worked a lot of business development, um, Started a couple of companies that di- didn't quite work out the way I wanted to, but I ended up I ended up getting back into law uh, about five years ago, which was awesome. One of the companies we advised, um, Sleeping Baby, was on Shark Tank, had a successful exit to a PE company last year. They're based out of Fort Worth, and uh, we started very early with them, where the general counsel did all their IP work, all their M and A work, corporate work, and along with athletes and other clients, we built that up and we've, we've now worked um, with VC firms doing fund formation, working with clients that are doing venture capital, um, sorry, ca- capital raises on the founder entrepreneur side. We work with athletes who want to get into um, investing and venture funds. So it's a lot of fun deal making and I'm really glad to be here and, and great to be with all of you. Thanks, Jerome. Sam, now any newcomers that have joined, do you want to give a quick overview again? Um, just of your background for any any new. So just a sh- short version. I run a company called Fundable Startups. Done five startups. Um, first two failed. Last three got uh, got acquired. Since you've probably already heard uh, my background, maybe I could offer one suggestion and tip. Since there's so many founders in here, one of the things I do want to encourage is make sure you are doing well at your peak performance. Um, being a founder is a meat grinder. All right. I suffered horribly as a first time CEO when that company almost went bankrupt a couple of times and I had to personally guarantee a $1.5 million credit line, all these challenges and stuff. Make sure you network with people and have a support network to help you. I'm a big sports fan. When you play sports, you get lots of injuries. The sports teams have a trainer. They have a staff to make sure their athletes perform at peak performance. Look for people who can keep you performing at your peak. You're going to get bruises, nicks. You're going to get yelled at from a customer. I got customer once who wanted to try to sue me, et cetera. Those things weigh heavily on you. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Sound advice. I love that. I know. That deserves some claps. Yeah. Take care of yourself. Mental and physical health. I love that. And agility. Um, We just came from a panel around fundraising. So I don't want to spend too much time on scaling fundraising. But I would like to start by asking one question. As you think about scaling your business and you think about on the fundraising side, what are some of those milestones that investors are going to want to know and look at as you scale your business from, let's say, zero to five employees, from then the next milestone of 10 to 50 employees? What are investors going to want to look at for those success metrics? I can start and we'll go down the line. I suppose there are th- tons of metrics. Let me try to pick one. It's been brought up many, many times. Uh, about customers, okay? Even if you haven't found your first customer yet, I kind of shared about earlier, show me your progress along the way, all right? And when I come from the B2B enterprise, so a lot of my customers had a very, very long sales cycle. One of the practical tips that I would suggest is that as a small company, you are going to have bigger companies, especially their enterprises, try to take everything out of you. You're going to ask for all sorts of concessions. With and when that happens, 
my philosophy is show me your grit by making sure you give no unilateral concessions. If someone says, I want a bigger discount on the price, say, okay, we can consider that. What would you give me in return? Okay. Can it be a testimonial, right? If you're an early stage company, customer testimonies are very valuable. So if they ask for, can you expand the scope or can you do a free pilot? Say, well, it's going to cost me a lot of money to do this. If I do the pilot, what would you consider success? Okay. If that's the case, if I'm successful, what will you do at the end of the pilot? Will you give me a conditional purchase order before the pilot? Okay. All these things show me why what you're showing me, you're doing smart execution as you try to acquire customers. We all want that customer. Okay. Okay. It's a great question. The number one thing I'm seeing is, is founder velocity. And I think traction has been said. And I think this idea is the founder doesn't need to be this 100% organized high C on the disc scale, 100%. No, we, we need some orderliness, but what we really need is somebody who's going to move the ball forward, okay to pivot. Um, but but when, when investors, savvy investors see a pitch deck, they don't just want to see flat line and then all of a sudden three hockey stick growth years right when they're trying to raise. It, it just it doesn't make sense all the time. So um, that could be putting together... a an executive team, a board, it could be, you know, customer validation has been mentioned. It could be testing, whatever it is, but milestones that's showing that you have some velocity and you're not, you're not just either raising money or just circling the drain. I think a lot's been said, which I agree with both of those. I think right now with the current climate, you, in the, in the past, you had a lot of people who care about visitors. I think really now monthly recurring revenue is huge if you build a startup around that to where you can just keep growing that. I also like that because then you actually have paying customers. We all talk about product market fit, but that actually does somebody actually give you money to do that. So um, I think that's probably what I would lean towards more than trying to build some kind of social network that has a bunch of visitors is actually who could pay you money. Yeah, I think all of those are really good points. Jerome, I want to go back to what you mentioned around founder velocity. I think this is really interesting, especially around um, pivoting quickly and, and understanding when to make those really hard decisions. Let's put that in the context of hiring your first few team members. How does a founder decide what those roles are, um, who, who it should be, what that process should be like? And then if it's not working out, how to have those hard conversations where maybe it's time to let someone go? I think over over 50% of initial startups end up in divorce. So I think Sean made the point about getting, you know, shares that are vesting and not completely granted. So it, it just happens. And so I've just seen many companies that start with a certain team and it changes. Um, really, it's knowing your weaknesses. What are, are you the mad scientist inventor? Are you the salesperson? Are you the leader? Are you the operator? Like, what what is it that's your strength? And now you've got to have the confidence to go out and hire some really smart people that can do things you can't do. And so I think that's that's kind of where I would start. And then if it's not working, I think especially in a virtual world, um, in small team dynamics, one bad apple can rotten the whole bunch. So if somebody's not working, you just you've got to make sure they're obviously invested, you know, vesting shares, and you just. You just have to say goodbye and, and you know thank you for your service and here's the shares that have vested at this point and you got to move on really quick because everybody in the team is going to know 
that the the lowest point in the boat is where the water is going to sink. So you got to have that, that your bottom performer's got to be really high. I, I also like to you know when you have a startup, you don't have a whole, whole lot of money. So how do you hire somebody that's got a lot of you know skills? I like to look for if it's not a super specific skill set that you need, like a programmer. I like to get somebody who's very coachable uh, that can learn. It's it's easy to learn. They like to do a lot of things. They're not, they're not the type that's going to ask about their job description. <laughs> Going to be able to do a lot of different things, and hopefully, you can get that person at a lower cost rate. Yeah, um, my general advice, especially around staffing, is hire slow, fire fast. Okay, there was a situation with one of the startups I was at where the highest paid person in the company was a VP. That particular VP was an excellent person. I would love this person to be my neighbor, but this person was not right for that role. It was just not a good fit. It was a mishire, and. I was asked by the CEO to uh, manage this person. I said, um, I'd be happy to do that, but I'm going to manage the person out of the company because he's not a good fit. And the CEO said, you can't do that because we're fundraising right now. And, my resp- and he said, basically, it would look bad if you had VP level turnover when we're fundraising. He's on the pitch deck. And I said, no, it will look good because you explain to anyone who asks we had a person who was not a good fit. It was a very difficult decision, but we amicably parted ways. We have a separation agreement and we made the hard decision to clean up something that wasn't working. You as a CEO are in your role to make hard decisions. Okay. So this is sometimes going to be one of the difficult ones that you'll have to make. Well, it's kind of also you'll hire friends, right? But you can never hire somebody that you can't fire. So that's one of the things, if you set your expectations up front, like if things go poorly, that this is what's going to happen. But you have to make sure you can get part, way, part ways. Absolutely. I think that's really important. And from the other panel, I know we were talking a little bit about cap table construction and how do you set aside um, equity for, for those first founding team members, but also if, if making sure that it, everyone's on the same terms, right? You never want to give a founder or co-founder instant equity, if everybody else is vesting on a four-year period or, or one-year cliff, why would you make special exceptions? So really thinking about as you hire those um, first first couple key talent, making sure that the equity also aligns and that you are proactive and preventative just to make sure that you can really see if they're in for the long haul. So I think super important. We're talking a little bit about talent fit. I'd like to pivot over to product market fit. What are some of those key milestones when you think about success of Growing your product or growing your business, not just from the talent side, but maybe it's revenue or maybe it's user engagement. What are some of those things that um, that investors or um, I would say even customers are going to want to look at from a product market fit perspective? So I have a very structured way at looking at things. So when somebody talks about product market fit, I think of three things, product feasibility, market desirability, and business viability. Product market fit is the combination of those three. There are people out there who said, uh, how do you know when you have product market fit? If you have to ask, you're not there. Okay, that's a true statement. They might say, uh, you know, how to get to New York City? Well, look, if you are in Times Square, if you're not seeing the bright lights, then you're not there. That's not actionable. Okay, so look for specific metrics in those three areas. If you only have success in two of the three, then it's going to be a problem. Let me give an example. If you have something that's market desirable and product feasible, you can build it, someone wants it, but it's not business viable, 
you are in, on the road to build a nonprofit, okay? Or if you have something that is market desirable, but business viable, but you can't build it because it's a, uh, you know, a rocket ship to, you know, Saturn, you just can't build it, then sorry, um, you, that's, that's not going to work either. So make sure you look at metrics in all three categories um, to help guide you towards that elusive product market fit. So with that, I think testing early is really effective, whether it's lean startup method or whatever you use. The clients I've seen that are really successful, they're willing to go out there and test and fail. And so, um, you know, that you have enough time to test the cash burn that way. But on the other hand, if you take months and months and months, what you think your cash burn is now, it could double. And so you, you could be running out of cash and you're going to have to go out in a down round or you're going to have to take some terrible terms. So I would just say test. I mean, Sam is an expert in this space, but just from what I'm seeing as an attorney, just testing early, you're going to get a lot of feedback and you can start to integrate that into whatever your product or service or offering is or tech is early. And I've seen clients time and time again successfully, even that didn't even have to raise... Again, you don't have to raise money. Like There's clients I've had that bootstrapped and very successful. So, but the, the key was they tested early. I want to go to the marketing side of it. Maybe like, you know, how do you actually find the customers to find the product market fit? And the, to me, you got to be able to tell your story in a powerful, emotionally story, you know, just a, got to be able to capture somebody's attention. And how do you do that? Well, to me is you pick like one specific person and you build the full profile for that person, what age they are, what demographics they are, what do they care about, where they shop and try to reach that person. Through and, and hopefully you can do it organically, but a lot of times you'll have to do it through ad revenue, ad spend. But you can do this with very small spends. We're talking five, ten dollars. You can do these very micro, um, small ads to find when that actually is um, getting profitable, that you have a return on that investment. Then you can continue, continually to um, scale that up. And then maybe you could get two or three different people. But if, if one specific person that you think is your target market does not react to your product, then you, you don't have the fit. I think that's really important. And it's a good segue into A-B testing. So if one message doesn't work to one customer, can you slightly tweak that messaging? And Sam, you talked a lot about the power of your content and marketing and messaging that. And you might have the right persona or the right buyer, but maybe you're not messaging correctly what your product is. Um, and testing that I think is really important. I'd love to talk about scaling sustainably, especially in the terms of uh, the, the market right now, and drum, especially from a, from a legal perspective, what you're seeing, and, and I'm not sure if everybody knows what a flat or a down round is here, but if you're not thinking about scaling sustainably right now and you're scaling at all costs where your costs are significantly higher than your revenues, and all of a sudden you're in a position where you need cash or capital um, and your investors want to continue to see you succeed if you've had previous funding, then you can get yourself into a position where you're going to raise money at a flat or a down round. Can you speak a little bit to what that means? Um, and then for the rest of the panels, what scaling sustainably means? So there's a couple of mistakes. One mistake founders can make is whether they raise on a convertible note or a safe with a low valuation cap, kind of a sweetheart deal to you know early stage angels or investors. What can happen is then once you trigger that, you've decimated you've decimated a large chunk of the cap table. So that's one issue I see a lot that I, I, if I can get there in early enough, I can help clients avoid it. The other, the other issue is, and talking about there's a lot of down rounds that are going on right now, but I have clients that um, are, have 
traction and they're not getting down rounds. But the majority of the thinking out there right now is because of the down round, which means that you raise it a lower value. You raise it a lower valuation than your previous round, which means in terms of dilution that you're giving away more and more of the company. So you have less fire, less kind of bullets in your gun. The traditional thinking now is, you know, venture debt or some other type of way to bridge the gap um, between now and your next round to kind of avoid that. And the last issue, I, I look real quick, I want to bring up in terms of angels versus VC. And Kara would love your thoughts too, being a VC. And the one board member told me this great thought. I, I always loved it. In, in the very beginning, when you're raising, whether it's friends and family or <coughs> angels that are writing, you know, very small checks, think of that as like the minnows. Okay, I'm not talking about Roger. I'm talking about like really sm smaller size deals. It's minnows. Those minnows attract the fish. Those attract the VC firms, attract the bigger angels networks, attract, you know, sometimes, you know, sovereign funds. And those fish attract the whales. People who write $10 million, $25 million. I was talking to NFL's 32 equity fund a couple weeks ago. They wrote a $300 million check for, for fanatics. But you have to think in stages and not just think, I'm going to get the venture fund and the whale off the bat. And just think of it as like a stage and a progression. And what love your thoughts too, Kara, because you're in this. Yeah, I, I would say um, good points. And um, as a part of the fund, Austin and a partner there, we're an early stage kind of micro VC. So we write 50K checks um, under a, a 10 million cap. And so we, we like to, to fund um, what we'd say is the ideas, the dreamers, those the first check in. I'd say the two things that are important for us is have your round soft circled. Don't come to us just with an idea as the first pitch and, and not have an idea of how you're going to get your round together. Really have an idea of who you want to participate. How much of it is it soft circled? Like show us a little bit around the proactive planning that you've done. And then the other second thing is, I would say from a, a hygiene perspective, get used to sending weekly, monthly, or quarterly updates to your investors, to your friends and family. Giving and that update can be everything from five bullet points in an email. It, it can include an ask. It can include highlights. Just make sure you get in the habit of sending that out because then you can go back to all of those updates and say, okay, here's the traction, the progression that we can show. And it also is going to help when you're fundraising for investors to show, like, hey, I'm I have I'm thinking about things outside of just like my day to day. I'm thinking about strategy. I'm moving forward. I'm also thinking about the wins that we had. So what I like to do is stop, start, continue, or um, what's blocking you? What's going to keep you into tomorrow? And if you can do that with your investors, they will step up. They will help you. They will they will take action if you need it. So two things I would say about scaling sustainably. Yeah, I'm um, I'm a big fan of being fiduciary, uh, financially responsible. Okay, one of the criticisms of founders in the past is that the moment you get a big check in, you start spending money uh, like crazy. I'm not a fan of that type. You should spend money responsibly. You should, you know, in some cases, pinch pennies till Abe Lincoln screams. Okay. But <laughs> the other thing I would say is take a look, do a Google search when you get back to your desk, et cetera. Sequoia Capital released a 50 slide deck to their portfolio companies. And what they talked, this was back in May or so of this year. And they were giving strategic guidance to the CEOs of the companies they invested in. And ultimately, if you read the 50 slides, it says stuff like, be financially responsible. It is a tough time right now. The weaker companies will die off, which means if you are financially responsible, you can grow sustainably and you are the one that will come out of this stronger. So make sure you... I, I am an engineer, but I one of my roles I'm playing right now for a startup is an acting CFO role. 
I care about finances. You should know enough about the finances to know what is the right amount of money to be able to be spending. And your acting CFO should not just be your accountant. It needs to be somebody who actively helps you manage the company and not just Oh, you spent 50 bucks on gasoline. Let me book it into the QuickBooks. Okay. So I'd like to take a little different approach to this question, more of the tactical approach, uh, and maybe not as a sustainable approach, is I like to break things when I, when, I, when I grow a company. If your ops team tells you they can do X, I want to do 110% of that. because, And you're going to break some eggs. You're going to have some customers complaining, which you should definitely, as a founder or a high-level exec, you should actually be talking to the customers, especially with the upset ones. And if you're if you don't have any upset customers, you're not scaling fast enough. So um, I think at all times you got to be pushing that forward. Um, it's one of the di- big differences is how a startup beats the big uh, you know Fortune 500 company is because they are going to look at how do they not mess it up, and we're going to look at how can we push forward as fast as possible and uh, break some eggs along the way. Great. What what uh, Darren just said? A, a combination of a Darren and a me. Would be really <laughs> right. Good. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe something will happen here. All really good insights. One thing that I like to think about is what's the ROI to what you're spending. Um, a good example is um, we had an opportunity to be a sponsor at a marketing event or a trade show or an advertising thing, and I said, okay, if we're going to spend five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, it doesn't seem like a lot, but if you're a pre-seed or seed round or you're in the first year or two, that's a lot of money. And so if you think about, okay, if I'm going to spend that $10,000 at this trade show, what do I expect on the ROI? How many networking events or how many people am I going to chat with? How many are going to convert to um, qualified leads? How many qualified leads are going to convert into sales? How many sales are going to convert um, into customers that will refer? And so um, I think you spoke to this on the last panel, but, but tracking the funnel and the metric of your spend I think is really important. And you can do that in obviously commercial activities. So sales and marketing is an easy one, but you can also spend that on talent hires. So having KPIs, having goals, don't just hire someone and say, okay, good luck, figure it out, let me know what you need. Like actually have what those metrics for success are um, for those folks as well. And I think if you if you can track to those, having those goals and KPIs are, are really important. Uh, well, I think uh, you don't spend a dollar without a goal in mind. Like, I don't know. I don't care if it's $100,000 or $10. Like, what, what do you expect of the result? What, what would you be happy that would happen out of this? Conferences are tough. You know, you might be able to just go as a day pass and get better than what your booth is because there's 10,000 other booths out there. So, you know, do you go really big on one or not? I, I think if you manage your expectations, set your clear goals up front, that, that, then you'll know what you actually your ROI was. And then, you know, today's day, you could track everything. If you're not tracking your ROI in every, which, every different which way, then you're, you're probably behind the curve. Yeah, good point. Um, I'd like to point out, I'm, I'm also a founder um, growing my, my company. We launched it this year. And one of our advisors and investors that participated was at a conference. Um, I think it was, it was either Money 2020 or a really expensive one in Las Vegas. And he said, I'm going to be there. I'll give you my badge. You can come in for the day. Um, and it was a free way for us to, you know, somebody to help us out where I could network, meet the people I need to meet. So also ask your investors and your advisors if they're going to be somewhere, if they can help you along the way. I think it's good to be scrappy like that. So we've talked a little bit about sustainably, uh, scaling sustainably, and we have sort of touched on the time frame of that. Um, and and g- give folks in the audience like an idea of, of what a, scale, a sustainable scale time frame is. Is it better to hold out for five years and just barely inch along versus, you know, running out of money in six months, you hire too fast. Like, what does that perfect time frame look like? And is it 
is it dependent upon the industry you're in or if you're a direct to consumer product or B2B product? Like w- what is that time frame of of scale look like? My approach is generally um, get someone who knows and spends get someone who knows your company, spends time to learn about your company, to dig into your, uh, your industry, your sales and marketing processes, where you're at in your uh, co- uh, company life, the product life, and then make a decision with data. Okay. It's very, very hard because what might work for company X, which is a B2C company, may be the exact wrong thing for a B2B company. So I would talk more about the process and getting people who know how to work the process to advise you than I don't know if I can... I don't have the capability to just say, do X, because I need to know more about the, the, the situation you're in. I might be giving you the wrong advice. I think as a founder, you're always pushing forward. So you know, you're thinking that and sometimes you have your blinders on, but we always got to think about what happens in the world, right? So like COVID can happen. Uh, you know, summer always follow, follows winter and winter always follows summer. So if things are really good right now, you better be pushing extremely fast. If things are bad, maybe you have a little bit of time. Your, your lead way is a little bit... You know, It's different for every uh, area and every company, but I think you got to really look at what the world is happening because things can change on the dime as we've all seen. Uh, especially the last 20 years, we've had... This is the third down, downturn. So it's going to keep happening. It's the stamina of your most important people. I know the story of Amgen, I think it was 10 to 15 years before you know, the first dollar kind of came in and however hundreds of millions of dollars, but it was this key PhD lab scientist who refused to give up, who was passionate about the mission and was up late at night, you know? So I would, I would say it's the stamina of your most key one or two people is the most important thing. So for the Amgen, because of the vision, because of the potential, they were able to last 10, 15 years. I think some startups, uh, was mentioned, hey, it may, they may be one year, two years, could be three. It, it, so it really, it, 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 how strong is your vision? How strong is the, the purpose, the culture? And that'll kind of tell you how much stamina your team's going to have. Because you may fight till the bitter end. And there's, there's Elon Musk out there who will make it happen no matter what. But we're not, not everyone is going to be that Patrick Mahomes out there. So we got to figure that out. Yeah, I love that. And I know um, we I have one question left potentially. So I'd love to use this last question is thinking about, okay, knowing your gaps and building your, your bench, um, where do you find good coaches and advisors? And how do you specifically build your advisory board? So not necessarily your investor board, but your advisory board. Where do you find those? And what kind of um, capabilities do you look for to add to that? Yeah. So I do a lot of training and teaching. So I have a course actually that covers uh, how to be able to find an advisor. Um, in that, I describe uh, the plan is map out your org chart. Okay. In a typical startup company, there are six components uh, of six functions in a company founding, funding, and exits, number one, product and engineering is number two, marketing is number three, sales and channels, number four, customer experience, number five, then operations, number six. Each one of these six you uh, map out if you have high-level strategic skills and low-level tactical skills. Figure out, lay it out on a two-by-two piece of paper, okay? Identify what portion of these functional areas that you have covered well, wherever you have gaps, and be honest with them. Those are places that are an opportunity for you to find an advisor to help you fill those gaps. So I would encourage that. I'll leave the, the other guys to talk about maybe where to find it. 
I would say you want to be a leader, not a laggard, meaning, you know, if you've got some company that, and you know, the main, the main line is the parents and it's something for kids related. Um, I expect at least one woman to be an advisor, right? Like that's just intuitive. Although some companies don't do that. So, um, I, I, I'm thinking, Hey, are, are you thinking about who, what your product and what your service is about? And do you have people on your advisory team who can speak contrarian to you and not just sycophantic, but are going to speak the truth to you? And where do you find those? It's, it's the networks. It's here. It's, um, your schools. It's through your investors, your strategic partners. It's sometimes it's a cold call, you know, LegalZoom did that. Um, it, there's no like one recipe for success. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it. I always like to go one level or two above my reach. And I got like my beautiful wife here, Christine. Like what, what I'm going to say here is I'm going to have people that I probably don't have in my network that I try to network with. This event would be one of them, right? I have a podcast to try to reach, you know, the Sam Wongs of the world. So that way I could connect them with them that probably is not going to answer an email that's to say, hey, let's go to coffee or is in a different state. So I'd say you got to put yourself out there. You got to try really, really hard to go outside your comfort zone to find these people, these advisors, and just ask. Because a lot of times they'll say yes. They like to be a part of things. They like to, if you can give them a platform back, kind of like with the podcast, starting that stuff up, going to these conferences. I mean, that's how I've always met. Anybody that's going to be somebody that I'm going to go forward with with business. Yeah, and one little thing about what Jerome said. There's a very very insightful uh, video TED Talk uh, up on YouTube. I don't remember the um, PhD researcher from Argentina who actually uh, said this, but the topic was uh, effectively why are most of the worst leaders in the world male? And the research shows that women have lots of value to bring. Okay. Unfortunately, because of our society, a lot of women uh, forego their career for some period of time to raise a family. Give people an opportunity. You have a lot of great women who will oftentimes counterbalance some of the recklessness of us men. Okay. My wife is that way. Okay. So don't neglect hiring a woman, even if maybe she doesn't have the the work history because she chose family over um, career that person can still be a fantastic person for your team. Well said. I'd love to end it on that note for questions. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley podcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only Before making any decisions, consult a professional.